Please be seated. The traditions and the rituals of Christmas time play an important role in our lives. These traditions can also be a source of temptation. They can be a source of trouble, and we could talk for a long time about those ideas. But seen in the best possible light, the ritual of observing Christmas at least assures seasonal remembrance of the wonder and the significance of Messiah's incarnation and of His redemptive mission, the mission on which the Father sent Him. God's Word does not command us to observe Christmas. There are spiritually vibrant Christians throughout the world that entirely ignore the holiday, and there's nothing wrong with that. They get along just fine, and they walk with God. But ritual observance has its place, and it can prove beneficial if rightly handled. Peter Enns has written, ritual breeds familiarity. It seeps into one's subconscious and however subtly begins to exert a formative influence. Such seepage can have negative effects, we would be quick to note, particularly when our affections rest in the rituals themselves and do not point us to the person, to the truths, to which they really are meant to point and where our affections are to reside. But rightly handled, ritual observances can breed the kind of familiarity that shapes and sharpens our worldview and indeed fuels our love for God. That's the intention. And it's in that sense that God bids us come as followers of Jesus Christ to the Lord's table. Unlike Christmas observances, this ritual observance, this ordinance of the church, is commanded by Christ. He calls us to come to this table. We're to come regularly in order to remember the pivotal moment in salvation history. Namely, the death of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners. Now we've sung of that here this morning. But we come to this place in this way, in this ritual, because God has bid us to come uniquely as a church before the table. As we prepare our hearts to commune with Christ and one another in this ritual meal, we should reconsider and and recognize that the Lord's table fulfills another ritual meal. Remember last week we looked at David's victory over Goliath and we saw in that victory pointers to a preparation for the victory of Jesus Christ over death itself. In similar fashion, there is linkage between God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery commemorated in the Passover meal and the redemptive work of Christ on the cross commemorated here in the Lord's Supper. The bread and the fruit of the vine that we are preparing to receive in this meal is not a Christian invention. The Lord's Supper fulfills Israel's Passover meal. That is to say, the Passover meal pointed forward to the Lord's Supper in the mind of God. The Passover meal is, in a sense, the bud from which the flower of the Lord's Supper blossoms. 
Understanding this relationship, I think, deepens the significance of this meal in our minds, and it stimulates our awe for the Savior with whom we are here to commune in a unique way. So let's survey briefly the establishment of the earlier meal in an effort to better appreciate its fulfillment in the meal that is before us here today. And I invite you to Exodus chapter 12. We will not rest long here, but to remind ourselves of this original meal. There is a connection here that we should grasp as we come to the Lord's table. As we come to Exodus 12, Moses, the leader of the enslaved Israelites, has issued his last appeal to Pharaoh to liberate God's people from slavery in Egypt. God tells Moses that Pharaoh will not listen. There will be one last plague, a tenth plague, and it will involve the death of Egypt's firstborn. After this plague, the Egyptians will release Israel from bondage. Exodus 12 provides instructions for that exodus. But the chapter also points forward, we notice. It points forward, providing instructions for the ritual meal by which the Israelites will annually commemorate these events. You get the real sense God's steering the ship here, don't you? He's talking about what's going to happen after the event that I bring about and how you remember it through the generations. So we read of the institution of the Passover meal here in Exodus chapter 12. At verse 1, we read, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. No excess. Try to use it wisely. Your lamb, verse 5, shall be without blemish. It shall be without blemish. A male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Now, neither the four days of keeping the lamb, and we're not sure entirely the point of that, but perhaps just to draw attention to this sacrifice that is to come, this meal that is to come, but these four days of preparation and the smearing of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintel, this was not perpetuated in the Passover uh, meal, the annual commemorative meal. These instructions pertained only to the night of Exodus. But the commemorative feast of Passover is set in place here as the liturgical calendar starting with the month of Abib is given here for the Israelites. It later became known as Nisan. So we kind of have both things going on. God pointing just to what is just about to happen in the Exodus and to what will take place in the Passover meal. Verse 8, 
More instructions, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now notice there's a subtle emphasis here in the text. As exciting as their deliverance would be, the focus is not on Israel's experience. The focus is on God's deliverance. This is the Lord's Passover. Above all else, He will pass over Israel in the sense that He will protect her from death this night. He will deliver her from bondage. Here's specifically what God will do, verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So through the death of a sacrificial lamb, God's judgment is averted. The blood of the lamb substitutes for the life of the firstborn in Israel. This is what God will do on this night. Looking into the future, the memory of this night is to live on in the minds of the people aided by the annual ritual observance. Verse 14, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So God establishes this commemorative ritual before the actual event. This indicates, of course, that God is sovereign. He is not guessing at what might happen later that night. He assures Israel, I will deliver you. This is the Lord's Passover and it will take place. But he's doing something more than simply assuring them of his sovereign control. I will pass over you, you will be delivered. But in this way, God also includes future generations in the celebration of that event. By establishing the Passover meal and this week-long feast of unleavened bread, which is now described in verses 15 and following. Skipping past that aspect of the celebration the feast of unleavened bread we come to verse 21 where moses instructs the elders of israel concerning the keeping of passover and then the historical account is recorded it's not until all of this is set in place that we actually have the passover verse 29 at midnight the lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of egypt from the firstborn of pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! 
Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Passover takes place as God has prophesied. And a meal, a remembrance, has been set in place. The institution of the Passover meal. Then let's turn, as we prepare for this Lord's Supper meal, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Here we enter into the last days of Christ's life, the last hours of His life. Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 17, we find here the institution of the Lord's Supper. Verse 17, we note that it is on the first day of unleavened bread that the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? With our knowledge of the Old Testament, we fill in here some of the concept of what's taking place in Christ's life right at this point. It is Passover season. And in obedience to the Mosaic Law, Jesus and His disciples will eat this meal together. In this ritual meal, they will commemorate God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt some 1,500 years earlier. All of these generations, through all of these centuries, the Israelites have continued annually to eat this meal, and Jesus and His disciples will do so this night. Verse 18, He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover Eating the Passover involves preparation for the Passover, and there were guidelines as to how it was to be prepared. I think there's some irony in Jesus' statement here. I will keep my hour is at hand, and I will keep the Passover. His hour was indeed at hand in more ways than one. It was time for this meal, and it was time for Him to give His life soon. So preparations having been made... And in verses 21 through 25, now Jesus unveils his betrayal and he identifies Judas as his betrayer. We'll not read all of that text, but zero in now at verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So in this meal, there was a a ritual way of passing through it, one stage to another, all of the pieces of the meal having symbolism and a very uh, structured way to make progress through the meal. But Jesus introduces here a, a very new concept as he eats the Passover meal with his disciples. There's debate as to whether it's after or during. I don't know that it really makes a lot of difference. It's in the context of the Passover meal. And he introduces this new concept. The disciples did not confuse here, of course, when he says, this is my body. They didn't confuse the bread Jesus held in his hand with his hand. 
They didn't confuse the wine in the cup with the blood flowing through his body. They could recognize, he's not talking in a literal sense, that this bread here is my body, this, uh, this wine is the blood flowing through my veins. Not at all, it symbolized his body and blood. But the disciples had been eating the Passover lamb. They're in the context of a meal. And Jesus says, this is my body. Take it and eat it. They have been eating the Passover lamb, but Jesus now points them to Himself as the one to eat in a manner of speaking. Communing together in the Passover meal in remembrance of God's past deliverance, Jesus points them now to commune with Him in anticipation of a future deliverance. While the disciples do not fully understand just yet, Jesus' body would fulfill the deliverance celebrated in the Passover meal. In Luke, it is added that he says, do this in remembrance of me. So as the Passover meal is a remembrance meal, so the Lord's Supper is a remembrance meal. Jesus preparing them for what is to come. The implication is that the Passover meal is replaced by the Lord's Supper since it celebrates an even greater deliverance for God's people. You have a, I think we can illustrate this from our common daily life, but you, you have a young couple that becomes attracted to one another and uh, there's a, a date that is set up and, and this couple, as they draw closer and closer to marriage in their relationship, might very well look back at that first date as an anniversary. And uh, sometimes you hear this, yeah, well, it's, it's our first month anniversary. We had our first date a month ago, and we're going out tonight to celebrate that we've been together for a month. And then it's two months, and then it's three months, and then it's eventually a wedding. I'm not, I don't know everybody's situation, but I don't hear too very often married couples that celebrate the first date that they had. Generally, you celebrate the wedding anniversary. That's at least more common, and maybe it's not always a good idea if, they're, if they are celebrating that first day that they met and not their anniversary. There's something probably not right there, but they look at their wedding date as the fulfillment of their dating experience. And so we, we say, how many years have you been married? Not how many years since you first met necessarily. That's the, 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 the fuller uh, expression of their relationship is in their wedding, not simply in the first date. Uh, it's, it's an imperfect analogy, but I think it serves us on some level here. The Passover meal is not insignificant. And for a long time it has been remembered by God's people to point back to what God did in the Exodus. But when we come to the Lord's Supper, now we have something that's a greater fulfillment of what came before. And so this meal, in a sense, replaces that earlier meal. It, is, it speaks of a greater deliverance by God, and so it is the greater emphasis. Likewise, verse 27, Jesus took a cup when He had given thanks, and He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Passover, for Passover, a lamb was slaughtered and roasted for dinner. 
On the first Passover, the blood of the lamb was smeared, as we know, on the doorpost, the lintel of the Israelites' homes, and they were then delivered from God's judgment. Jesus now explains that the cup takes on a new prophetic focus. The cup now points forward to Jesus' death, to His shed blood. His shed blood will inaugurate a new covenant between God and His people for the forgiveness of their sins. The blood of the Passover lamb spared the Israelites from physical death on the night of the Exodus. But Jesus' blood, in a much fuller sense, will deliver God's people from the ultimate death resulting from God's judgment, eternal judgment against their sin. Positively said, the sacrificial death of Messiah secures the forgiveness of our sins. So the Passover points forward to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, the ultimate Lamb of God that will provide the ultimate salvation. But there is, even yet, a greater fulfillment to come. A final consummation of God's redeeming grace for His people. Verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's a, that's a prophecy. That's, a, in a sense, a promise. He will drink it again. But not until... The Father's kingdom. I will drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So there's yet a future day when Christ's redemptive work will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This does not mean there's anything lacking in Christ's death and resurrection. It means only that Christ's victory is being worked out through time till it comes to the consummation where, think of this, as we come to this moment, Till it comes to that time when we will be in the presence of Christ free of sin. I don't know about you, but I deal with sin as I come to this service. I'm dealing with sin as, as I'm working through the songs that we've sung and the Scriptures that we've been reading. There's this pull of sin to take my thoughts in other places and to think about wrong things and to have a cold heart as I come to this place. I look forward to that day when I'll be in the presence of Christ free of sin. No temptation. Nothing in us clinging to our flesh that is corrupt in any way, shape, or form. That day is coming and Christ points us forward. Now this table points us there. Here, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And when He comes, He will drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Now let's just stop for a few moments further and just put together what is fairly obvious to us. But to spell out the salvation historical linkage between the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper. There's really some intriguing ideas that we could chase here at length, but I'll just mention them with a few comments. Number one, both meals celebrate the deliverance of God's people from death by means of a substitutionary sacrifice. In the Passover, there was a lamb that was killed. In the Lord's Supper, there was a lamb that was killed. The Savior, Jesus Christ, giving His life for us. And we're not twisting that concept out of the Scriptures. 
In fact, the apostles of Christ reference this in numerous ways in various contexts. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 refers to Jesus this way. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. I mean, there it is, bluntly put. John records the statement of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but says even more in in chapter 19, verse 36, where John argues that no bone was to be broken in Jesus' body as fulfillment of the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think the only possible fulfillment here is Exodus 12, 46, and Numbers 9.12, which say to the Israelites, do not break a bone in this lamb. Here John, providing for us direct consideration of that linkage, no bone of Jesus' body was broken with all of the torture that he received. Marred beyond recognition, and yet not a bone was broken in fulfillment of, of this Passover meal and its regulations. Peter also referring to Jesus this way. Where is he getting this? Think of this. He says, the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now we know no sacrificial lamb was to have a blemish. It wasn't to be lame or something missing a tail or an ear or in some way uh, um, not whole and complete. But Exodus 12.5 says that the Passover lamb was to be without blemish. And so in some sense, there's uh, from the apostles themselves this continual linkage back to the Passover sacrifice. So in the Lord's Supper, we don't eat here a roasted lamb. We mystically eat the body and blood of the Lamb of God, the greater sacrifice. So both meals celebrate the deliverance of God's people from death by means of a substitutionary sacrifice. Secondly, both meals were instituted prior to the actual event they commemorate. Exodus 12, there are instructions for Passover before it happened. For the celebratory meal before it took place. In Luke 22, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. He hasn't died yet. This is my body. This is my blood. He hasn't died yet. And I think to a man, he's meeting with people who really don't want to think about the fact that he's going to die. By establishing the ritual commemoration before the event, The ritual becomes a participation in the event, in some sense. Not a participation in the re-crucifixion of Christ over and over again. Hebrews 9, 24-26 says, no, that's not what's happening here. But it is a participation in an identification with the death of Jesus over 2,000 years ago. So both are instituted before the actual event. I think some linkage there. Thirdly, both meals are restricted access rituals. According to Exodus 12, 43-45, no one outside the covenant people of God was invited to participate in the Passover meal. 
there would be Gentiles living among the Israelites, and that was fine. Nothing wrong with that in, in the Old Testament text. There would be Gentiles who identified with the covenant people by men being circumcised and their families then being part of the covenant people. And there were a few that did that. But this meal, this Passover meal, as it was celebrated each year, was not an evangelistic event. It was not intended for people outside of the covenant to participate in it. No one outside the covenant was permitted to join in with the Passover meal. On some level, at some place, that had to be offensive. There's Gentiles living with you. You may on some level get along with them, but when it comes to this Passover meal, they are not to participate. As we move to the Lord's Supper, I think there is a connection here we need to at least consider. Just this, pa- this past week, this first day of the week, this past week, there were gospel-preaching churches around this city who served the elements of the Lord's Supper to people who came into their buildings with absolutely no question of who was taking part. Gospel-preaching churches, Christmas Eve services, serve the Lord's Supper to anyone who wishes to receive it. I, heard, I read uh, this week the intriguing story of a godly, faithful um, seminary professor who, visiting out of town with a family, was with a family in his, among his relatives that didn't know the Lord, had never trusted the gospel were not followers of Jesus Christ. And he was a bit surprised when the unbelieving relatives asked if he wanted to go to church on Christmas Eve. And they went to church on Christmas Eve and the Lord's Supper was provided to anyone who wished to take it without any explanation of what it really stood for. He, the follower of Jesus Christ, did not receive those elements. The unbelieving relatives sitting next to him all did. There's something that's really stood on its head there. And I think we need to be really careful with this meal to recognize there is linkage with the Passover meal here. That this is not an unrestricted access ritual. This table is restricted to those who have repented of their faith and have placed their full trust and confidence in Jesus' death and resurrection as the only means of the forgiveness of sin. This meal is then for those who have entered into the blessings of the new covenant, receiving as a gift the forgiveness of sins available only through the death of Jesus as the Lamb of God. Because at this table, we come here and in eating with one another say, I belong Christ. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. I have trusted Him. I have followed Him. And I followed Him in recognition of this reception of the Gospel in believers' baptism. As we look through the New Testament accounts, all who had such faith in Jesus demonstrated that faith by identifying with Him and His people in the waters of baptism. 
So immersion in water as a testimony of one's salvation is the initiatory rite of the church, the Lord's Supper the ongoing rite of those who have trusted Christ and identified with Him in believer's baptism as Jesus lays out in Matthew 28, 18-20. It is a restricted access ritual. It's intended to be that, not to offend, but to hold the concept that there are those who are in Christ and who have identified as followers of Christ and there are those who have not. Well, so what? Uh, what do we make of this as we come to this meal today? Isn't, isn't the connection between the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper simply a matter of intellectual stimulation, of interest to some and less to others perhaps? Is that all that's here? I think not. Let me just draw out three points as we bring this to, uh, to the table. Let's recognize this. To participate in the Lord's Supper is to touch the ancient stream of salvation. It doesn't give us salvation. We're not any closer to God by eating this bread and drinking this fruit of the vine. We're not. But, it is a participation in the ancient stream of salvation history. How often do we think about this clearly? This table laid out here before us represents 1,500 years of Passover meals. Of God's people through the world for 1,500 years celebrating Passover. And as we come to this table, it represents some, I'm being very free with my numbers, but essentially 2,000 years of the followers of Jesus Christ taking this cup and this bread and eating it as an identification with Christ and with His people. We can't even get near anything that old in our nation in our world we come here to this place today and partake of this meal we tie into that ancient story and we identify with god's saving plan through the ages secondly participation in the lord's supper is a privilege purchased for us by the death of jesus christ that is blatantly obvious to us patently obvious but meditate on it for a moment can you imagine how privileged you would feel if you were a firstborn child in israel on the night of exodus I mean, as you're coming out of egypt you're saying i could be dead like those other guys for no reason other than they're the firstborn i've been delivered by god the, the blood on the doorposts and the lintel of my home has delivered me as the firstborn. How joyful would you be? How thankful would you be to God? Do we recognize coming to this table, we acknowledge a far greater privilege. We have been given here, that it is a symbol of what has been granted to us, a deliverance, not simply from momentary death on this particular night, but from eternal death 
That's what's been purchased here. By eating these elements today, I acknowledge that Jesus' blood secured my place at this table. It took nothing less than His death to grant me access to this memorial meal, this ancient meal, through the centuries that we now identify with. I have been given the privilege to come here as I've trusted Christ as Savior. As I've identified with Him. And that firstborn that leaves Egypt that first night, how thankful he is to say, I've been delivered from this death. But imagine now as he's eating the unleavened bread in the wilderness. He eats that bread with a sense that I, I could be dead. We didn't have time to get leaven in our bread. We had to take it as it was. And here I'm eating this bread, but I'm alive. How deep should our thanksgiving be as we eat this bread and know that it was purchased for us by the blood of Christ? How much more should we rejoice? And thirdly, to participate in this meal, if rightly done, is then to commune with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. Somehow, in taking this meal, we commune uniquely with Christ. This ritual observance is designed by God to encourage the kind of familiarity that shapes and sharpens our worldview. We're meant here to so commune with Christ that it changes us. This ritual observance is designed by God to encourage a deeper love for our Savior and His body. And all that I've brought to you here today as we've thought through these ideas is hopefully to bring to our attention the significance of what has been won for us here and the significance of our participation in this table. We need to come ready. That is, by examining our own hearts, knowing that we have confessed sin and are right with God as far as we can make it right. Knowing that we have identified with Christ crucified and risen, that we have demonstrated that by following Him in believer's baptism. If you're not able to come to this table on those terms, that's fine. And we invite you to just observe and pray and draw close to the Lord. But let us come in this way to this table and commune with one another as the followers of Christ. There is a communion here as we identify with Jesus. And there is a communion with the risen Savior around this meal. It is real. He's given it to us. And He means by this ritual to shapen, to sharpen our worldview and our love for Christ. Our Father, we bow before You now in prayer and thank You for the sending of Your Son to bear the penalty of our sin. We do not come to this meal as a means of gaining a greater standing before You, earning righteousness through our endeavor. But we do come to this meal recognizing anew, in a ritual way, considering the same ideas that we've considered time and time again before this meal, and eating the same way, we come to this ritual asking that You deepen us in our faith through it. And that we would here indeed commune with Christ and with one another. 
For those that know not Christ as Savior, I pray that they'll understand the restriction. For those that are not prepared to know that there's no shame or harm in, in not participating in this meal. But I pray, God, that through this consideration, they would come to a place where they're ready and able not by their good works, but by the work of Jesus Christ. And for those of us that are prepared, we do not come in pride that we've earned something or we've done something right. We come in absolute humility before you, thanking you for the work that Christ has done to secure this opportunity for us. And though, even on some level, we can't fully explain how this meal benefits us as believers, we nonetheless rejoice to participate in it and ask that through this meal together we will draw close to our Savior. We will commune as the body of Christ. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.